they sent out a release saying that Breeze Airways, which is a low-cost carrier, is going to begin operating two flights or two round-trip um, routes from Stewart Airport in February. They are going to be flying to Orlando and to Charleston. Um, you know, this is pretty interesting because Stewart has really struggled since the pandemic. Um, you know, it's, it's both a military and commercial airport. It, you, it, you used to have Delta, JetBlue, and American Airlines flying out of there in addition to, um, I think, like, I think Spirit Air maybe used to fly out of there. Norwegian Air, when that existed, flew out of there. Um, all of those big carriers have suspended service or have said they're not coming back. And so currently, the only airlines that fly out of Stewart are Allegiant Air, which is another low-cost carrier, and they only operate a couple of routes. And then Play Airlines, which is um, a budget carrier based in Iceland that um, has really, really cheap flights that go through Reykjavik, and then you can go on to a bunch of different destinations in Europe. Um, and so, uh, you know, a new airline coming into the airport is, is, is definitely a big deal. Breeze is, um, is a new airline itself. It was founded in 2021, um, actually by a guy who previously founded JetBlue. Yeah, he, he actually um, founded five different airlines, and I only know yeah. about and 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 four of them are still going. And I only know about this because it was featured on the NPR show uh, Freakonomics here uh, earlier in the year. And I thought the whole concept of Breeze, uh, how they're keeping it low cost, is they're they're going for I guess routes that aren't usually traveled, kind of tapping untapped markets. Is that is that what they're going for? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, they, they fly what they call underserved routes. Um, Orange County is going to be their 45th um, destination. They, they fly out of five other or four other airports in, um, in New York. Um, and, you know, like a lot of other budget carriers, they do like what's called a point-to-point network rather than like a hub and spoke. So, you know, like Delta, for example, has a hub in yeah. Atlanta – and then we'll try to route flights back there. That's where they have their headquarters and, and most of their planes, or not most, but a, a, a big chunk of their planes. The downside, of course, of the point-to-point network is that if, you, if there's a point of failure anywhere, you have like cascading cancellations. That's kind of what was happening with Southwest um, earlier this year. But um, unlike a lot of other budget carriers, you know, Breeze, Breeze has like different pricing tiers. They, they have... Um, you know, you can you can pay a little bit more to get like in-flight food. Um, you can have you know checked baggages for like a lower fee than like what you would get with uh, Spirit Airlines, for example. Um, and they also, um, I think, interestingly, don't charge change fees, which um, as someone who has had to fork out to change a flight many times in the past is something that was music to my ears. <laughs> So this is this is interesting. Um, and when when is again when is this supposed to actually uh, come to fruition? It will be. They'll start flying in February, and I and I checked, and you can actually start booking flights now from from Newburgh uh, in February. They start um, they start flying to Orlando on February fifteenth, and to Charleston, uh, South Carolina, on February sixteenth. 
All right, cool. And uh, we've got a few minutes left, and um, you, you're and this is about uh, renting in Newburgh, rent stabilization. What what exactly is the article about? Yeah, so um, Newburgh, uh, the city of Newburgh conducted a, a vacancy study of rental units that would qualify for what's called the Emergency Tenant Protection Act. Um, but essentially is the, is the state law that allows um, municipalities to stabilize or, or exert some amount of control on rents. A um, little bit of background is necessary here. The Emergency Tenant Protection Act um, was initially passed in 1974, um, and, it re- and it only applied to New York City and then the immediate suburbs, like I think one or two counties in Long Island and then like Westchester and Rockland County. In 2019, the state legislature expanded it to cover the entire state. Um, and per the terms of the law, it only applies to buildings that were constructed before 1974 and that have six or more units, rental units. Um, so the first step toward being able to opt into the law is conducting a vacancy study. You have to show that um, you have 5% or fewer rental units of this type available on the market. Um, Kingston was the first city uh, in the Hudson Valley to pass this uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and Newburgh is now sort of tracking t- toward being the second. Once, once you conduct this study, then um, it allows the uh, the, the city council or city legislature to declare a rental emergency, and then it will form a like a housing commission, which will lay forth the policy for stabilizing rents. So that whole process is going to take several months, um, and if it plays out anything like it did in Kingston, it's going to face significant challenges. Um, Arlena Bellamy, who wrote the story, um, talked to some legislators involved, and they, they tried to kind of, um, like, lawsuit-proof their study. Um, Kingston, Kingston did two studies. Their, their first one, they outsourced to, um, to an outside company, it, and they didn't do a very good job and, and didn't find the right um, – like, basically didn't query the right um, landlords and the right tenants. For their second one, they did, the city conducted it themselves, but they did it like by just sending out like mailers and the way that they classified how people, um, like did or did not return them has been contested by a landlord's association in court. Um, that's been a long running thing. Um, it's probably still going to go up to the court of appeals. Um, Newburgh had kind of overlapping um, data sets here, like they, they did a survey, they went door to door, they, they used mail, they also used water department data to sort of double check that units um, that were reported as vacant were in fact vacant. Um, so the hope they say is that that will inure it from a legal challenge, but um, you know, we, we, we will see what happens. Okay, great. And we're going to have to get going, but um, you know, again, there there's a there is a, a public hearing. Do you know when that is? You let folks know about it. Uh, the public hearing um, 
it, they have, it hasn't been scheduled yet, or at least as it's, uh, the other day when Lana did this article, they, they told her that um, it may be scheduled as soon as December 11th, so that would be next month. That was according to a recommendation by the city's Corporation Council. Okay. Well, Philip, thank you for going over all this news for us. The latest from the Hudson Valley. Remember, uh, Times Union is uh, online, and it's at I, – I lost the website. You want to tell folks the website real quick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just timesunion.com, and it's all the Hudson Valley stuff. It's timesunion.com slash Hudson Valley. Timesunion.com slash Hudson Valley. Philip Pantuso, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com From Dog Mountain Lodge Providing dog boarding and grooming Also boarding cats, birds, and other exotic pets Located in Keshecton, New York And on the web at DogMountainLodge.com And from listeners like you Welcome back to the local edition news and information, keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Jory Smith was on the verge of freedom and five days had passed since his sentence officially ended on August 28, 2020. However, the prospect of freedom took an unexpected turn when officers at Marcy Correctional Facility, medium security prison in upstate New York, called him to a conference room. Rather than setting him free, they informed him of a transfer to another prison. That's the opening paragraph of an article now up at New York Focus titled, They Were Supposed to Be Free, Why Are They Locked Up? On the phone with us now is the author of that article, Chris Gilardi. Chris, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. So, I mean, that's a heck of a headline right there. They were supposed to be free. Why are they locked up? Um, What is this story about? Well, um, the story goes back quite quite a ways, um, back to New York's um, what, what's on the books now. It's it's sex offender law. Um, so under New York law, if you're um, convicted of a certain type of sex offense, um, then during your time on parole, which can last anywhere from three to twenty five years. Um, you are severely restricted in where you're allowed to live. The most common um, restriction that people know about is like this 1,000-foot rule, which um, says that you can't live or even go within 1,000 feet of a school. And so that makes it very hard for people um, who are convicted of these types of crimes and are on parole to find housing. And finding housing is actually um, a precondition of their release. So, um, a few, like in the 2010s, um, people noticed, or some legislators noticed that people convicted of sex offenses were going into homeless shelters um, that were within a thousand feet of the school. So they decided to crack down. 
And the prison system's solution, long story short, I guess we can get into the details in a bit, um, was to more or less keep them in prison under a sort of loophole in the law that allows them to um, technically not be prisoners, uh, not be like in prison custody, but still actually live in the prison. That's this is something I've never heard anything like this. And uh, does that mean that they're are they free to come and go from the prison? You would think. And um, honestly, I was shocked to hear about this, too. I've been covering the New York prison system for almost two years now. And when this came across my email, um, I was really shocked. So what actually happens when they hit their release date um, and they have not secured compliant housing? Um, the Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, which is the um, state agency that runs both the prison and the parole system, convert them into parolees and then send them to what is called a residential treatment facility or an RTF. It's, it's, a, it's a misleading name. It's actually not a separate facility in itself. It's, it's a designation within certain prisons. So they really just send them to a different prison. Most of them go to Fishkill Correctional Facility in the Hudson Valley. Um, and there, some of them are in a separate unit. Some of them are just in the general population, but they're not free to come and go as they please. They're, they're actually just treated just like normal prisoners. They wear normal prison uniforms. They abide by all the prison rules. Um, they, uh, yeah, abide by the prison schedule. They have normal prison jobs. They're effectively still prisoners, even though they're technically on parole. My goodness. Um, and if does this mean that they've served their time? There's this concept about the legal system that, like, if you if if you commit a crime, you're convicted. If you're sentenced, you know, your sentence is about that's your time. You serve your mm-hmm. time. Then when you're done serving your time, your debt to the state or to the rest of society, then you're free to go. Does is this mean that they that they've served their time, but yet they're still serving time? Yes, it it, it does. You know they're. Prison sentences can be um, a little bit confusing. Sometimes you can get released early. Um, sometimes, you know, there are maximum and minimum sentences. The people I've, I was reporting on and, and the people I spoke with and um, who have complained about this and filed lawsuits and things have served their maximum sentence. So they they blew past their, their minimum sentence, like their possible parole date. They hit like the maximum possible sentence they're allowed to be, um, you know, prisoners. And when they hit that maximum sentence, yeah, docs um, transfer them to these residential treatment facilities and, and, and kept them in. It, it is, it is really, um, it, it's egregious. It is, it's like a basic tenet of, of the criminal legal system is when you're convicted of a crime, you serve the sentence that is imposed on you. Um, and yeah, they're, these people are really serving um, far more than that. You referred to docs there. That's the Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. Um, you said essentially it's a loophole that allows this happen. I mean, how does uh, Department of Corrections justify uh, incarcerating these individuals past their release dates? Yeah, the legal stuff is a little complicated, but more, more or less, um, there is a part in the state corrections law that allows um, the Department of Corrections and Community Supervision docs to um, house people on parole in like a residential treatment facility. And what docs is saying is that that allows them to, um, yeah, put, put these people in, an, in a residential treatment facility 
um, without letting them come and go as, as they please. Like, like it's, it's, they're saying that it's housing, but it really just is, um, it is just being in prison longer. Uh, there, there have been some lawsuits that have been filed over the past few years that have tried to challenge this. Um, and the New York uh, court system has mostly given, uh, sided with docs and given them the green light to continue this. There's a new lawsuit that's um, actually just coming up. It should be coming up for oral argument fairly soon. Um, so we'll see um, what happens there. Wow, this is this this is something else. You've re, you've really found a story here. Um, now, what about and 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 I just you, you know the the release is contingent upon finding housing uh, restrictions. The Sexual Assault Reform Act affect the housing options. You know for for reasons like that you noted. Um, mm-hmm. What is it? The Department of Corrections that's looking for the housing before folks go is is this in any way related to the housing crisis that everybody else is experiencing you know i I, partly it is i I mentioned the thousand foot rule in schools and the sexual assault reform act um but that's not the only reason that people can't find housing there's um one of the people that i i profiled in this story one of the two main um characters is chris gordon and i talked to his mother and according to her um he experienced um, some violence in the prison and also some health issues that are a little bit um, a little bit of a mystery. But long story short, his his condition has really deteriorated. He's in his fifties, but apparently he needs a wheelchair and um, his mental function isn't all there. And he needs a um, he needs to live in a nursing home more or less. But he can't find a nursing home to live in because a lot of the nursing homes won't take um, sex offenders. And, and so that's just another reason, like, it's not just this 1000 foot rule that is preventing people from leaving prison. It's, it's, it can be like all sorts of reasons. Um, but yeah, so back to your question about docs helping them find housing in one of the lawsuits that has been filed, docs's position was that, and the court sided with the department was that it is not actually responsible um, to find people housing and it doesn't have to help them find housing. And you can actually see like people uh people that I spoke with said that uh they don't help them find housing um you know people in prison don't have access to the internet they it, um getting access to like newspapers where housing listings might be is, is very difficult um so it's really just kind of an impossible situation and then along those lines what what about homeless shelters? What role do homeless shelters play in the lives of parolees uh restricted by the sexual assault reform act yeah so um the Sexual Assault Reform Act was passed in 2000, and for a number of years afterward, um, if people couldn't find compliant housing, then docs would release them to homeless shelters. Um, and we're mostly talking about uh, people downstate where it's a little denser. Um, so they would go into homeless shelters and, you know, live just as, as homeless New Yorkers. Um, but soon... Um, legislators, specifically uh, former Senator Jeff Klein, um, noticed that some of the homeless shelters um, that people were being sent to, one, were family shelters, so there were children in them, and two, were within a 1,000 feet of the school themselves. Docs was kind of just uh, treating them as sort of like de facto exceptions to the 1,000-foot rule. Um, And because of pressure from fine and from um his allies in the state legislature docs uh 
stopped releasing people to homeless shelters that were within a thousand feet of a school. Now, in New York City specifically, that 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 really limits the homeless shelters that they would be able to send them to. Um, there, at the time, were around 270 shelters in New York City, and only 250 and 256 of them were within a thousand feet of a school. And as a result, the homeless shelter system in the city, where a lot of these people were being sent to, um, like limited the amount of people that they would take from docs like per month. Um, and so that kind of created this backlog, which led to what I was just describing with docs um, sending people straight to the RTF, which is in a different prison. Well, Chris, I would like to talk to you about this longer and, and just, again, the bigger picture work that you've been doing in investigating the, the whole uh, carceral uh, criminal legal system for New York Focus. We are going to have to get going now. Is there any final thoughts you want to share with folks before we go? Um, I, I would just say that, uh, yeah, people, if people are interested, they can contact their legislators about this. And um, when the court system uh, makes this decision on the lawsuit that we just mentioned, we'll definitely be writing about it. So, so look out for news about it. Okay, the article that we've been talking about is called They Were Supposed to Be Free, Why Are They Locked Up? And the author is Chris Gilardi, who investigates the state's criminal legal system for New York Focus. The story's up at nysfocus.com. Chris, thank you for this good work that you're doing, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us tonight. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for the local edition tonight. Thank you so much to uh, Chris as well as Philip Pantuso for joining us. Thank you for listening. Remember, never miss any episode of the local edition. Sign up for our podcast. You continue to listen on air here at Radio Catskill online at WJFFradio.org. Get the Radio Catskill app. Ask your smart device or smart speaker to play Radio Catskill. Coming up at 7 o'clock, we've got Ramble Tamble up next. It's The Daily. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, Radio Catskill.